Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Shirley Halperin, Executive Editor of Music, and my guest today is Bruno Del Granado, who is head of the Global Latin Music Touring Group at CAA, and as I learned recently on a trip to Miami, is also the ambassador to all things Latin entertainment in that city and beyond. Gloria Stefan, Ricky Martin, Mark Anthony, Bad Bunny, Maluma, all are on a first-name basis with Bruno, and he's played no small role in their careers throughout the years, first as an executive at MTV, later as a manager, and for the last nine years as an agent and executive at CAA. You could also throw onto his resume marketer, historian, PR strategist, and even unofficial census monitor. As you'll hear in this conversation, Bruno has committed a lot of numbers to memory, including the growth of the Spanish-speaking population of the United States, its buying power and consumption habits, and how Latin culture, content, and art has impacted the pop charts, touring, television, film, and tech. Where music is concerned, the U.S. has come a long way since 1954, when Richie Valens's La Bamba catapulted up the charts and could be heard on radio stations everywhere. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a pop playlist or late-night TV show lineup that doesn't feature a Latin artist, never mind arenas around the globe. On this episode, Bruno talks us through the quote-unquote Latin explosions that got us here, touching on everything from the loss of Selena Quintanilla to the record-shattering arrival of Despacito onto American shores in 2017. And it should be mentioned that as this podcast was going to bed, Bad Bunny had just released his latest album, Un Verano Sin Ti, which looks poised to break Spotify's all-time record for most single-day streams and could, depending on the exact numbers, be the biggest sales week for an artist so far in 2022. 
These days, non-English speaking artists are no longer required to conform to anglicized lyrics, and that's led to artists like Bad Bunny and J Balvin becoming bankable international stars, and to the embrace of K-pop music, best demonstrated by the astronomical reach of acts like BTS. Bruno talks about these topics and provides a lens into current-day Miami as it relates to the making of entertainment in all forms. Join us after the break. Welcome back to Strictly Business. Here's my conversation with CAA's Bruno Del Granado. Bruno, hi. Thanks so much for being on Strictly Business. So excited to have you. Hi, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's start by um, sort of explaining what your position is at CAA and how you ended up there. Tell us, how long have you been at CAA and where were you before that brought you to the agency? Okay, so I am the head of global Latin music at CAA, and that basically means anything that touches Latin music. Um, I have involvement because I either have relationships or because I'm on the ground every day in Miami. So the agency's music initiative in the Latin space kind of is something that we put together as a group, and I kind of spearhead that. Uh, I've been at CAA nine years as of last month. And uh, before that, I was Ricky Martin's manager for 10 years. And Ricky Martin's a client of CAA. He has been for the last 20 years. And before Ricky, I was uh, um, I ran Madonna's record company, Maverick, uh, the Latin division. And she was a client of CAA and still is uh, for many, many years. So I've been directly and indirectly connected uh, to CAA for, gosh, 20-something years now. So your position is a music position, but it seems to me just from having spent some time with you and talked to people uh, in Miami that you do way more than just music. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is, Shirley. I mean, when it comes to Latin uh, culture, media, music is at the tip of the spear. It's what drives Latin culture. Everything begins with music and then, you know, it branches off to TV and uh, digital film and everything else. Uh I am based in Miami for that reason, because Miami is the capital of Latin media, not just music. The television networks are here. The you know, Meta, Spotify, Apple, they're all here. The uh, platforms are here, HBO Max, Viacom, Paramount Plus. They're all based in Miami. So because everybody's in Miami, I plant the flag or the flag, the CA flag and have to represent CA every single day, dealing not only with music, uh, clients and talent, but also television and, you know, publishing and tech and everything else. Uh, so yes, you are right. I am more than just a music agent because that's what I have to be in Miami. You know, the competition is so tough and I don't mean competition from the other agencies. It's just, there's so much going on that you really kind of have to be a jack of all trades now. So you your time preceded the internet, but it was like the stepping stone to basically figuring out how the music business works completely. I'm very proud of the fact that I came up uh, when I came up because the business was just really different. So I came to the United States from Spain in the early 80s. And uh, my, my, my plan, or my parents' plan was to, you know, uh, get a major in, in business and politics and 
go back to Spain or do something in that field. I was always a music nut, passionate about music. I, I remember going to clubs, going to record stores. So grew up with music my whole life, even though nobody in my family was in the music business. Now, if you don't come from the music business, especially back then, Shirley, now all you got to do is, you know, Google, how do I get a job in the music industry? And you get 25,000 suggestions and contacts and emails and everything else. Back then, if you were not part of the music business, you did not know there was a music business. Uh, by coincidence, I met this girl at a class. She happened to be a DJ at the college station, WVUM. As you know, back then, college radio was the thing. It was the coolest place to be, whether you're a DJ or a fan or whatever. Um, and I happened to, through her, get an internship and a shift at the college station. It was a graveyard shift, a 4 a.m. shift, but I loved it so much. And when I discovered music as a business, as more than just as, as a fan, I thought, uh-uh, I can't do anything but, but music. By coincidence, and what happens in our businesses, as you well know, 90% of, of, of things happen because you know somebody, 10% of them happen because you happen to know what you're talking about, right? So connections are everything in our business. Through that radio station job, I met the, uh, the folks at the concert committee at the University of Miami, the folks at the newspaper, and then the CBS Records College rep. And once I realized there were record companies i thought this is it that this is all i want to do with my life you know and and i'm so blessed because it was at a time when the record companies had college reps and college radio ruled the world and you know artists could take two or three or four albums to break well talking about the 80s so i feel like there was a big latin explosion in the 80s due probably entirely to gloria stefan and her you know, string of hits, because it really was one after the next after the next. Tell us about sort of the how modern Latin pop became a thing. This I, we'll call this uh, the Latin explosion 1.0. Exactly. Okay, so Latin music had already been heard, you know, through La Bamba and Guantanamera and Tequila uh, on the on U.S. radio sporadically. But it wasn't until 1984, what I like to call that the big bang in contemporary Latin music. So hear me out here. There's five different things that happened in 84 that conspired, whether together or not, to really blow up Latin music. So the first one you mentioned is Gloria Estefan, the Miami Sound Machine. They had a hit called Dr. B. Uh, it was their first English language album. They've already released eight Spanish language albums. So they had already toured the world and they had sold already millions of copies. But Dr. Beat was the first English language song to explode in Europe. It, it, it was a huge hit in the UK. It was top six. Uh, it was top three in Holland, top 10 in Italy, Spain. Massive, massive European hit in the summer of 1984. So then when Emilio gets ready to put the next album together, Sony wants something that's very, you know, very pop. Emilio gives them conga and they're like, no, 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 this is too Latin. Emilio had the upper hand, number one, because he's a visionary. Number two, Sony had to release a follow-up to Dr. Beat just because Dr. Beat was so big and the international affiliates were clamoring for a new Gloria and, and Miami Sound Machine music. So Dr. Beat comes out, explodes, and then that sets the, 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 the ground for conga, rhythm's going to get you. And like you said, the dozens and dozens of number ones and top 40 hits they had. At the same time, their label mates, uh, Julio Iglesias, signed to Columbia, by the way, because uh, the Miami Sound Machine were epic, finally decides to release an English language album. So Julio, once again, biggest Spanish language artist in the world in the 70s. He was playing at stadiums in Taiwan and, and, and China and the Philippines before he was even known here at the general market. 
massive, massive artist, right? The biggest male artist in the history of Spanish music. Julio releases an album called 1100 Bel Air Place. Uh, and there was a duet with uh, Willie Nelson, To All the Girls I Loved Before, and one with Diana Ross, which is all of you, beautiful, beautiful songs. That album was a top three album in the US and it, the, the singles peaked the top 10. So Julio Iglesias gets this foot in the door, sells 3 million copies, at the same time as the Estefans are having the hit with Dr. B. Now across the street, RCA Records, Jose Menendez was running RCA at that time and he decides to sign Menudo. So Menudo was were created by this gentleman, Edgardo, in Puerto Rico in the late 70s. And, 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 and the, the inspiration was the Jackson 5s, Osmonds, they exploded throughout Latin America, but they were not known in the US apart from the Latin areas, right? New York, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles. So Jose Menendez at RCA decides, we're going to make this a major priority for the label. So then they record an English language album with Robbie Rosa and Ricky Martin. Ricky had just joined Menudo. Suddenly, Menudo go from being just known in, in the Bronx or, you know, parts of Miami to playing Madison Square Garden to, to you know, uh, the Love Boat, Sesame Street, McDonald's commercials, they, uh, Pepsi, they were all over the place. So Menudo explodes. So that's number three. Number four, Madonna, who is not Latin, but she is part, you know, we've accepted her as many, many decades ago as being a Latin, an honorary Latin. Madonna releases her debut album, which was basically put together by Jelly Bean, who John Jolie Benitez, Puerto Rican-American DJ from the Bronx, who basically uh, made Holiday her big, big breakout song, which is based on freestyle musical influences. Latin freestyle was the music that Latins in the Bronx, in Miami, in LA were listening to at that time. Uh, and in 1984, Madonna exploded, and then Expose in Miami, Beyond exploded as well with, the, with, with uh, Point of No Return. So Latin freestyle became this huge genre through the rest of the 80s, but sung by Latin artists, produced by Latin producers, but sung in English. So we had those four things, five things that basically created what later was known as the first Latin explosion. So Bruno, what role did MTV play? Oh, MTV was huge from, from, from the get-go. I mean, I joined MTV in 93 when we launched MTV Latin, but before that MTV US played Julio, they certainly played the Miami Sound Machine, they played Menudo, and, and of course Madonna is, is, is you know, a cornerstone of MTV. MTV is very supportive of, of Latin artists, the freestyle artists. You know, you know how, uh, how surely you know, Dick Clark had American Bandstand and Don Cornelius had Soul Train. Well, for us Latins during the 80s, Club MTV was our American Bandstand. So every afternoon we'd watch uh, the latest videos by Judy Torres or Sweet Sensation or George Lamont, Noel, all Latin artists, by the way, Mark Anthony. And you would watch all these mostly Latino kids in New York dancing to it on Club MTV. So that was MTV's way of giving us our own American bandstand, if you will. So the 80s uh, lead into the 90s when there was another huge Latin explosion. Well, first, I would give the first half of the decade to Selena, Selena Quintanilla, because that is a real like... Like, what a story, a regional, you know, Mexican Tejano sound, you know, not only reaches like the mainstream of America, but like could have launched a major pop artist. And then uh, the late 90s is another huge explosion with uh, Ricky Martin and Shakira. So so tell me about the 90s in terms of Latin music. So when it comes to Selena, um, you are right. She, she could have been beyond big it's 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 the sky's the limit was for her uh, the one thing we talk about when we talk about the 1984 artists that i mentioned none of them were mexican mexican-american 
there are 62 million Latinos in the U.S. as of the last census. Over 70% of the 62 million are of Mexican-American origin, right? So the vast majority of Latinos, Hispanics, whatever you want to call us, here are Mexican-American origin. Selena was that. She was going to be that Latin Madonna, that Latin female global superstar. And she was on her way because of, number one, the talent that she had and also the genre. Regional Mexican has always been a humongous genre here. It doesn't get the credit or the attention because it's either pop or reggaeton or whatever. That's what goes global, right? But it, it, in terms of numbers of volume, it's still humongous. So Selena was certainly cut of her prime. A huge loss to this day. When you talk to Becky G or, or, or Carol Leslie, they're all influenced, the, the new generation of female artists, Isabella Merced, they're all influenced by, by Selena. It's incredible, right? And, and she barely got one English language album out posthumously. It's just so sad and so mind-blowing, right? And then, of course, we had the, the humongous Latin explosion of 1999, which it's actually, I don't want to say it was a joke, but, you know, it's funny because when Ricky performed... Uh, the Cup of Life at the Grammys in 1999, it was like the headlines the next day was America, new artist is born, America discovers Ricky Martin. And we're like, wait a second, that song was released in February 1998 for the World Cup. It was number one in 50 countries. Ricky performed the song at the final between Brazil and France to 1.5 billion people around the world. And suddenly like nine months later, oh, a new artist is born. America discovers Ricky Martin. So it was really weird because a lot of these artists, Shirley, Enrique, Ricky, Mark, Shakira, they'd already been releasing music and touring forever. Ricky's debut album as a solo artist came out in 1990. So he'd already been, you know, releasing music. And same with Enrique, by the time he, he, he quote unquote exploded with, with Bailamos, Tito bit already released like four or five albums. It was very interesting because suddenly America discovers Latin music. Uh, and, and Sony, I'll do credit to Sony. This was something that Sony really put together. And they did a great job. Most of those acts were Sony. Yeah, uh, but Shakira like I said, too. Shakira was Sony. Mark Anthony was Sony. Ricky was Sony. It was one of those where, since I'd been part of, of, of Latin music for, for many years before that, you kind of sit back and realize, wow, it's about time. You know, they're, they're giving their dues. The difference was that only the artists who could speak English well were the ones who were given a shot, right? Because it was still the gatekeepers were still media, it was still Barbara Walters, it was still the Today Show. So you needed as an artist to be able to express yourself well when you're doing the junkets in the U.S. So they also sang in English. They also sang in English. The one-off Macarena kind of hit. You know, the, the quirky song every once in a while managed to slip into right. uh, the chart. Novelty but you hit. Needed, not no exactly not yeah. you, you could not if you were ricky enrique shakira you had to record it mark anthony you had to record in english right it had to be english production english language quality production and everything else that was the essence of the of the 99 latin explosion i remember that summer where the cover of time is ricky martin cover of newsweek was shakira you're like oh my god i think we're here i think we're here to stay and suddenly three months later it's gone <laughs> Summer finishes and we're gone. So you think it was just a summer phenomenon? It certainly was. I mean, I, I remember vividly by the time the fall rolled around, you know, we kind of had a couple of songs here and there. Santana was, you know, I'd released a huge album there that Clive Davis put together. That right. was still kind of, you know, in the charts, but everything else was, was basically done. Uh, it didn't have the staying power that we thought it would. Uh, 
even though our, our, our demographic numbers were already very strong back then, the Latin demographic numbers. But, but you know, things happen for a reason. Ricky had a career before this U.S. massive breakthrough, and he's had a career in the last 20, 22 years since that happened, 23 years. Same with Enrique. Shakira's only gotten bigger. Mark's only gotten bigger. You know, they, they've all managed to survive and succeed because the world is just a big market. It isn't that the U.S. is shrinking. It's the rest of the world getting bigger. And the great thing about Latin music is it's it's so catchy that fans around the world love it. The music just seems to have this thing where it just grabs you and just holds you and just whether you understand it or not. And just something that just envelops you. Uh, I was in Saudi Arabia with Maluma. Uh, I was a client uh, a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, big, huge festival in Riyadh. And there was probably 70,000 people, right? So Maluma is the headliner and all Saudi Arabians, by the way, it was all Saudi kids. And backstage speaking to the folks who are working, you know, the backstage area, the productions, the PAs, all the runners, everybody else, they're all folks from, from North Africa, right? Mali, Chad, Niger, Sudan, folks who don't even speak English. And they're all telling me in what little, you know, word, little sign language you could understand how much they love Latin music and that they listen to Latin music and you think, wow, it's global. It truly, truly is because of the sounds and the melodies. So going back to, to that 1999 explosion, all of these artists had a career after that explosion and they still are very viable touring artists. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Bruno Del Granado. back with Bruno Del Granado. So a word that is inescapable today, but in the mid 2000s was just starting to really bubble up is reggaeton. What is reggaeton and who are the artists that that really brought it to US shores? So reggaeton is is a derivative of Jamaican uh, dancehall and dembo. It was originated in Panama. Panama has a huge Jamaican uh, population. They're all emigrated when the canal was being built. So the Panamanians started listening to reggaeton and started adapting it. The first artist to have recorded reggaeton in the late 80s, early 90s is a Panamanian artist called El General. He is like the granddaddy of, of, of reggaeton. And later on, CNC Music Factory used him for a song called Boricua Anthem, which actually he adds, he adds all the sauce and the flavor to that song. So he was the first artist. Reggaeton caught on really fast in Puerto Rico and Colombia and a lot of the uh, Caribbean nations. But it was the Puerto Ricans who took what El General had done and just completely changed it around and made it to what it is now. You know, artists like Tego Calderon, Daddy Yankee, Nicky Jam at the beginning, you know, they're the architects of re modern reggaeton. Bad Bunny technically is not anymore just because he's just global, right? A lot of these new artists like Carol and Maluma started as reggaeton with Alvin, but they've become something bigger than that. At the beginning, everybody thought, oh, you know, this is just gonna be a passing fad. Just shows no sign of abating. You know, because every couple of months, the genre keeps reinventing itself and new superstars keep coming out of it. Yeah. So it's no surprise that Louis Fonsi, who in 2017 released Despacito and it featured 
Daddy Yankee. Um, That was really the song that blew the doors open for this Latin explosion that we're still feeling today. Actually, that hasn't really slowed at all. It's just gotten bigger. So tell me about the significance of Despacito and, and how huge of a hit it was. Despacito is, like you said, Shirley, the one that not only blew the doors open, but I tore off the hinges off the door and it guaranteed that Latin music's not going to be going back anywhere anytime soon. It became a phenomenon in, in 2017 when it was released. You knew the first time you heard that song, especially with the mix with Luis Fonsi's vocals, the songwriting and Daddy Yankee, the fact that the video was shot in Puerto Rico in one of the most iconic places called La Perla, you knew there was something special. But as, as the weeks and the months went by, you're like, oh my God, this is unstoppable. And then Balvin followed and everybody started following. So, you know, Fonsi basically charted the course for this new Latin explosion, which not it's not really an explosion, Shirley, because we're here to stay, right? There's six, like I said, 62 million of us. There's no longer, oh, it's just a passing fad. But it's it started in 2017. The numbers just keep getting more stratospheric and it doesn't show any sign of abating. But once again, not only is the demographic in our favor, but when you think about the U.S., L.A. is over 50% Latino, surely, and New York is over 30% Latino. The U.S. is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world after Mexico. Think about how many Latinos there are here, and that's the market for all this music, first and foremost, and then it crosses over to a general audience. I want to stay on Despacito for a second because I don't want to discount the Justin Bieber feature. I do think that that kind of took it over the top, but the great thing about it is that he was singing in Spanish. So Mm -hmm. like I remember Scooter Braun, who's a previous guest on this podcast, he was telling me that there was nothing more gratifying than during the Trump presidency to have a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 that was entirely in Spanish. But I really do think like uh, Bieber added something to the equation, but also didn't take away from it by only singing in English. There were two versions, right? He sang in, uh, yeah. there were two uh, verses, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Bieber added gravitas and the fact that the general market was going to pay attention because it's Justin Bieber, the biggest male artist in the world, by far, you know, humongous globally, right? So adding Justin Bieber was a great, I don't want to say marketing ploy because maybe that it wasn't that. It wasn't. It, it was, was just, actually organic. He heard it was organic the song exactly. and he was like, yeah. I want to jump on this mm-hmm. song. That's how yeah. great features happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it helped take it to a global level that we had hoped it would initially, but with it, Justin Bieber is a different story. The same when Beyonce reached out to Jay Balvin and said, you know, my daughter's a huge fan of yours and, you know, we want you here. It's the same thing where you suddenly get a seal of approval from a major artist. The other thing about Despacito is it was a really big YouTube hit. Like people flocked to watch the video, um, both the version with Justin Bieber and the one without. What does that say about the Spanish speaking market and the technology that that market embraces? Latin fans uh, listen to 20% more music and average than general market. They, they stream 6.4 hours Uh, in an average week, which is 30% more than non-Latin fans. So as it stands, Latin fans already over-index in technology and social media. 
you know, Mexico is the, the streaming music capital of the, of the world, according to Spotify and Spotify's numbers. They have more listeners in Mexico than New York, London, or, 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 or any other city. YouTube, 45% of all global music listening is discovered on YouTube. And YouTube is so big for Latin artists. I can't stress how big it is. It's part of an artist release marketing plan now, just because they know that God, there are 1.9 billion users every month on YouTube and they're all looking for music. Any given week, YouTube has four or five Spanish language videos on the top 10 of music videos. So the importance of music video for us is probably bigger than anything we've seen before. Before, you know, before it'd be like, you got to get yourself on Good Morning America or, or the Today Show or, or the, the Night Show, whatever, Late Show, whatever it was, or SNL, if you were lucky. Now it's get your video on YouTube and make sure you start getting uh, video views. That's probably the best way to work uh, Latin music globally now. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the current count. 7.8 billion views for the mm -hmm. Louis Fonsi, mm -hmm. Daddy Yankee, yeah. Despacito. Yeah, and it was not the most viewed video for, for many, many months. Yeah. I think till what is it, Baby Shark or something took it over. But it was just month after month. It was the streaming numbers and, and the video views were like in the billions and keep, it kept growing and kept growing. Well, speaking of numbers, so Latin tours were the first to restart during the pandemic. And they did and are continue to do record numbers. Can you give us some context for the kind of ticket sales that we're seeing when it comes to, to Latin acts on the road? Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, Bad Bunny's Ultimo Tour del Mundo wrapped up and it was the highest grossing tour by a Latin artist in, in Billboard's box office history. And with $117 million gross of 35 shows and 575,000 tickets sold, I, I think. Maluma has just finished a sold-out European tour of arenas. He just played a couple days ago a homecoming concert in Medellin, Colombia. And Madonna, who did a song, a duet with him a couple years ago called Medellin, joined him on stage. You know, Ricky Martin and Enrique Iglesias last year had the biggest selling tour in the U.S. Ozuna is about to go on the road. He's got a huge deal from Live Nation. So, Latin artists, as you said, were the first to announce tour dates last year before the vaccines were readily available. And they were the first to go out on tour. Why? Because Latin fans love to go to concerts. It's part of our DNA. We need to be at a show. And hence the reason why, for example, you know, Live Nation, the world's largest promoter, is making serious inroads into the Latin space, not only in the U.S., but in Latin America, right? We saw it at Coachella as well just recently. This year, they featured the largest Latino lineup with over 20 Latin artists from various genres, you know, reggaeton, regional Mexican. And that was up from 17 artists last time they had Coachella in 2019. So once again, we go back to the demo. It's all because they see the numbers. They see how real our growth is and our purchasing power. So they have to cater to us. What is Live Nation doing to strengthen its foothold in Latin music? Well, they have a full team of marketing and promotion and promoters who work out of their LA office, New York, Miami, scattered across the country. They've acquired various promoters in, in Puerto Rico and South America. They've rolled up Ocesa, which is the largest concert promoter in Mexico, and which basically means now that Live Nation can offer a Latin artist a world tour the way they could offer, you know, a Justin Bieber, John Bon Jovi or whoever. And they're doing that with Rosalia, by the way. They announced a world tour that every single stop that she's going to do, whether it's in Spain, Latin America, or the U.S. or Puerto Rico, will be with Live Nation. So I think that's what we're going to see more. Live Nation offering the big Latin names 
the kind of deals they offer, just a Bieber, a Weekend, a Drake, a Rihanna, or somebody like that. Was it previously a network of regional promoters? Yes, yes. The Latin, especially Latin America and the U.S. Hispanic market was always very mom and pop, very small promoters. Kind of the way things used to be here before FSX. What is F? F, F uh, SFX. Whatever it was. SFX <laughs> rolled everybody into one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, rolled everybody under the Live Nation banner. We do still in the United States have the what we call the independent promoters. We have the CMN, Cardenas uh, Marketing Network. We have Loud and Live. We have several folks in the Southwest and in Texas and in Miami. So we do still have that, but you know, it's going to be harder and harder to, to compete with Live Nation. It seems like uh, English speaking artists are sort of losing that dominance over, you know, global pop. Non-English speaking artists, also those who speak Korean, K-pop are gaining a lot of ground. Obviously this wasn't always so. What do you attribute this to? Obviously, uh, streaming and video views, and in the last couple of years, and even this year, TikTok has said the big trend to watch for in 2022 is the continued growth of K-pop and Latin. As you know, TikTok has replaced everybody when it comes to launching new music, and they've been a huge proponent of music. It's in their best interest to promote uh, global music, right? So part of the reason why Latin just keeps getting bigger, and so does K-pop. The great thing about K-pop, it's so well-produced, it's perfect. It's like there's no glitch whatsoever when you listen to K-pop music or or you watch K-pop videos, the addicting melodies, the choreography, the talent that not only is music, but their actors or everything else, the fashion sense that they have from Korea. So K-pop checks all boxes. Latin's kind of coming right up in the heels of that. But I think social media is a huge huge part of why non-English language music is getting bigger and bigger. And like I said, the two best examples of that are Latin and K-pop. Going back to the numbers, and this is this is the one that blows everyone's minds. Latin music consumption in the U.S. Uh, soared 35% to 886 million. That was in 2021. And it is projected to top 1 billion in 2022. How does that influence the sort of the greater music industry and TV, film, branding? You've mentioned this before. Latin purchasing power is incredibly robust and Latins love to consume culture. So what do these numbers mean? Break it down for us. Well, first of all, our Latin purchasing power in the U.S. is $2.6 trillion. So if we were a country, we'd be the eighth largest economy in the world right now. And it's expanding faster than the UK, Germany, France, and Japan's economy. So that in itself is a huge number, 2.6 million. Latins love to purchase. Latins love to go to shows. They love to buy the latest iPhone, the latest sneaker, and everything else. The thing about Latin music and the advantage and the benefit that it has, and if we reach that billion-dollar threshold this year, which we probably will, because, you know, our growth was plus 35% last year. And, you know, I want to say it's a no-brainer, but probably will happen. Well, and even just post-pandemic, you would expect it to rise rather than fall. Yeah. When it comes to TV, I'll give you a perfect example here. The American Music Awards added a fifth Latin category last year. And as a result, there are now as many awards for Latin as there are for pop and country. This is the AMAs, right? Dick Clark created it as a pop award show to compete with the Grammys. There was no Latin category up until 1998. So we're kind of fairly new there. The Anglo Grammys, because we do have the Latin Grammys every year in November in Vegas, and it's all Latin music from all over the Latin Spanish-speaking world. But what we call the Anglo Grammys, the general market Grammys, they have five Latin categories. 
And that makes Latin one of the six most crowded fields in the Grammy Awards structure. So that in itself says a lot that the interest from the general market uh, television is certainly there. And we certainly see it when you turn on any talk show or any any kind of variety, whatever show you watch now, it's it's either Latin musical guests invited on GMA Today Show, CBS, Late Show, whatever it is, SNL, or when it comes to casting of Latin talent for television shows here. Now, that is still something we need to really, really work on. USC Annenberg did a study from 2007, I think, to 2019. Latino characters accounted for only 5% of the speaking roles in 1,300 popular films. So we have a lot of room to grow there. And that's mind-blowing considering we're 20% of the population and 25% of the movie purchasing audience is Latin. So we still have a lot, a lot of room to grow when it comes to that. Music, like I said, is the tip of the spear. It's always been first and foremost and everything else follows. But as the numbers keep getting bigger, as the GDP keeps getting bigger, the demographics, the population, that only works in our favor. The latest estimate I read from the Pew Center is that by 2050, which is 28 years from now, there are going to be over 110 million Hispanics in the U.S. That's huge. And also, I mean, even with the music artists, like, they're not exclusively music artists, most of them. They have branding deals. Uh, some of them have clothing lines, right? Like there's ancillary yeah. businesses. Oh, it's huge. So Bad Bunny, Marvel announced he's going to be part of the Marvel Universe. Super Maluma, a deal that we made at CAA, co-starred opposite Jennifer Lopez in Marry Me. We're seeing a lot of that. We see Anuel and Ozuna with their clothing lines. And all the Latin urban artists have borrowed a page from Jay-Z's book when Jay-Z said, I am not, what is it? I'm not a, I'm not a businessman. I'm, I'm a business yeah, man. Exactly. Yeah. Charlize. Mm -hmm. I'm a business man. So <laughs> you see that with Balvin, with Maluma, with Ozuna, with Nikki Jam, with Bunny, with everybody, really, that's what they've become. And then when you think about somebody like, for example, Jennifer Lopez, who is Latin, she's the queen in our top of the list. She's also been doing so much for the last 25, 30 years. She started as a dancer on In Living Color, then she did Selena movie, and then the albums for Sony, and then the more movies and clothing line with Kmart and Coles and all this stuff. She's been like the ultimate example. Sofia Vergara is another one who's been like the ultimate example of how to diversify your portfolio. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we had Jennifer Lopez on our cover as the music mogul of the year. I think it was two years ago, but I mean, she is a mogul, like on the level of a Jay-Z, like no doubt. Okay, shameless plug for Variety. We recently had a wonderful event in Miami called Miami Entertainment Town, where we recognized people who, in the business of entertainment, who are making a big impact in the city that uh, musicians seem to be flocking to. Let's talk about Miami a little bit because something that I found interesting was that there was a time when Miami seemed like it was in all these TV shows. I mean, for, you know, Miami Vice, obviously in the 80s, but even Dexter. And then it seemed like television and film production kind of waned. Why is that and is it changing? Well, just to add on to, to your comment, Miami goes all the way back to Jackie Gleason at the Jackie Gleason Theater when he used to film his cavalcade of stars here. And then later that became the, the Honeymooners. And he would always end his show with this thing where, from different sites on Miami Beach and say, Miami Beach audiences are the greatest in the world. And that was aired nationally on CBS, black and white in the 50s. And it was amazing. You were right. Miami's always been the sexy place in the 80s. 
it was Miami Vice, which is shot in its entirety in Miami. And the, it put the city on the map globally. To this day, we have Germans, Italians, Australians coming to Miami because they remember it from Miami Vice. At that time, the city of Miami had a lot of incentives to lure filmmakers and television shows here. Over the years, those incentives have been done away with. And now states like Georgia, Louisiana, the Carolinas, and of course, Canada have stolen so much away from Miami that, as you heard, at our Variety Miami event, the mayors of Miami and Miami Beach were talking about instituting a lot more of an incentive to bring more productions here because they know a good television show like Miami Vice is worth every penny. And it's a thousand times more effective than any campaign the tourism board can put together. I swear to God, when you watch all those beautiful shots from Miami and the pastels and the beach and the flamingos, you're like, oh, gosh, I want to be in Miami. You know, there's nothing beats that. The Latin American streamers who are, most of them are based in Miami, are using Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina uh, for production now just because the level of creativity down there is tremendous. And it's relatively inexpensive compared to the U.S. to shoot down there, right? When we launched MTV Latino here in Miami, and it was decided that MTV Latin America was going to be based in Miami, we would bring the best and brightest producers from the various countries to work in Miami. It was much easier getting a visa back then for, for a lot of the Latin Americans than it is now. Uh, but Miami has to get a lot more competitive. The, the immigration visa situation has to get a little easier for these creatives to come in and do what they have to do. This city is the capital of Latin music, Latin culture. You know, I've heard many times say that Miami is to Latin what Nashville is to country. And it is certainly true. I know of so many people in the music industry that have moved there either full time or have a second office, second location there. Like it really does seem like a hub for music, not just Latin music, like hip hop and and obviously pop singers. I mean, you look at someone like Anita, the Brazilian superstar. It took a few singles, but she has really managed to, you know, create a sound that works on both sides of the language barrier. If you go to the Hit Factory, which is like the ultimate recording studio here in North Miami, uh, where the Eagles recorded in the long run and Fleetwood Mac recorded Rumors and Bee Gees recorded Saturday Night Fever, you go there now on a Friday night and it's like the who's who of the hip hop world and the Latin world as well. It's like, oh my God, Jay-Z's there right next to Anuel and next to, you know, Balvin and next to, you know, Wiz Khalifa and Lil Wayne. It's like, wow, that's impressive. CAA, of course, uh, has so much business down there, and we look forward to seeing what you'll come up with next. Thanks, Shirley. And, and you know, the, the one thing about CAA, like I said, nine years into CAA, they're very committed to Latin. We're committed to multicultural. Every year we have a, an event in California and Ohio called Amplify, which is the gathering of the minds of all the multicultural different areas of the business. So it is one agency that's put its money where its mouth is when it comes to Latin multicultural and, and everything else, because whether we like it or not, Shirley, it is the future of this country. We like it. Um, we do, and we do, as, as Enrique Iglesias would say. Thanks for tuning in to Variety Strictly Business. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes featuring conversations with media movers and shakers. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing.